Well, I thought that with Halloween being in a couple of days, I'd begin this morning with reading from one of the scariest books I've ever read. It's actually an old book my mom used to read to me. The scariest book I've ever read is called The Monster at the End of the Book, starring lovable, furry old Grover. Stephen King ain't got nothing on Grover. Well, the story, if you've never read it before, isn't very complicated, because if you turn the first page, you discover that there's a nervous Grover who speaks directly to you, the reader, warning you that, as the title suggests, that there is a monster at the end of the book. And Grover then begins to bargain with the reader to not finish the book because he's really scared of monsters, you guys. But should the reader persist, should the reader turn the page and ignore Grover's warnings, Grover will then try several times to prevent you, the reader, from progressing. He will attempt to tie the pages together, or he'll nail boards to the pages to try to stick them together, or then at the very least, he will try to make a brick wall to stop you from attempting, but each attempt will fail. But then on the second to last page, teetering on the end of the book, Grover offers one final plea to not turn the page. Because friends, there's a monster at the end of the book. But if you're brave enough to disobey Grover, as my mom always was, you discover that Grover was the monster at the end of the book all along. That the scary monster at the end of the book turns out to be none other than furry, lovable, old Grover himself. And he says you were so scared. And I told you over and over again there was nothing to be afraid of. Well, Grover, you got to get your story straight because that's just a flat-out lie. He was the coward all along. (laughs) In my experience, which I admit is not very much, For a lot of good and faithful Christians that I know, they've been conditioned to read the Bible in the same exact way. Believing that there's something scary at the end of the book. And because of that, any texts or passages that talk about how the Bible is supposed to end, it frightens them. And these texts wind up being texts of terror. And we either follow Grover's advice and we stop reading or we don't read them, completely forfeiting the comfort and the joy and the hope that these texts, friends, were originally supposed to bring. Or we read these texts through the wrong lenses, and these texts become what they were never meant to be, fuel to the fire of centuries of unhealthy, idle speculation, or worse, biblical sources of anxiety and fear and dread. This morning, I hope I bring to you a word from the Lord from one of those texts. One of those texts of terror about how the Bible is supposed to end. Because contrary to popular opinion, I don't think there's a monster at the end of the Bible. Because spoiler alert, I think there's actually some really good news waiting for us there if we're brave enough to look for it. 
Sometime shortly after Paul and his companion Silas were forced to skip town, Paul, likely from sanctuary in Corinth, wrote one of two letters, we believe, to the coastal city of Thessalonica. If you go back and reread the book of Acts, during his second missionary journey, Paul makes a pit stop on his way through Macedonia after receiving a vision of a man asking for help. And instead of going to Asia like he wanted to, Paul then heads to Macedonia, believing this is the Lord's will. Now, the brevity of the letters underscores the importance and the prominence of Thessalonica in that region. The Romans chose Thessalonica to be the capital of the providence of Macedonia. So if it helps, think of it kind of like a state capital. If Macedonia was a state in the United Empire of Rome, Thessalonica would be Lincoln. And so this city received great privilege within the empire. The city actually sided with the winning side of a fairly recent Roman civil war. So Thessalonica was known as a free city, meaning it enjoyed the benefits of the imperial government without any of its presence. And so there was no imperial taxes, no IRS. They could have their own currency. They had a Ro no Roman soldiers stationed in town, and they could pretty much govern themselves. Life in Thessalonica was good, and they were proud of that fact. They were proud of their history. They were proud of their heritage, and they were, they were proud of their place in the empire. But from what we know, again, if, from the book of Acts, if you go back and reread it, Paul didn't simply pass through town. Rather, he stayed in Thessalonica for a while. We're not sure how long. Some think it's as little as three weeks. Some think it's more like three months. We're not, we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that many in town, Jews and some Gentiles, came to faith as a result of what him and Silas did there. That through their preaching and teaching, a church was born in Thessalonica. But, and again, go reread Acts for more details. Some in town were jealous of Paul. So they turned the town against them. They incited riots. They falsely arrested a guy. It was quite the kerfuffle. And in the ensuing commotion, the Thessalonian believers secretly smuggled Paul and Silas out of town for their own safety. And because of that, many nowadays think that Paul and Silas had to leave Thessalonians and that church as a work in progress. That there were still things they needed to teach, things they needed to say, leaders they still needed to train, but they had to leave in such a hurry that they couldn't do it. And so later on, Paul winds up sending his protege, Timothy, back to Thessalonica to check on him, to see how things are going, because Paul genuinely cared about the well-being of these essentially baby Christians. And so after his journey and visit to Thessalonica, Timothy rendezvous with Paul, who believe believe is in Corinth, and gives them an encouraging positive report, news of tremend that's tremendous blessing to Paul, that he says that in our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about your, because of your faith. But Timothy must have alerted Paul to something, because there's some concerning news and pressing issues that Paul has been made aware of, things that prick his heartstrings, and if Paul can't go in person to handle it, he's going to do the next best thing. In an age before email and texting and phone calls, he's going to write them a letter and send it back, presumably with Timothy. And we call this letter First Thessalonians. And many smart New Testament scholars believe it to be one, if not the earliest letters that we have from the hand of Paul. 
They even think that this is the oldest surviving document in the entire New Testament. And I think that's kind of cool. So if you go back and if you reread, if 2 Timothy is believed to be the last one and 1 Thessalonians is believed to be the first one, you can read everything in between and see the growth and evolution of Pastor Paul's theology, but also his ministry over what we believe to be about a 20-year gap. That's kind of cool. But from what we can gather, if we were to reverse engineer 1 Thessalonians, Timothy seems to have mentioned a situation that's developed since Paul's untimely departure, something he knows Pastor Paul would want to speak to, and we're not privy to the details, and perhaps the details are not that important, but what we can tell, that it seems that one or several people in that church have recently died. Death has unfortunately stung this tight-knit Thessalonian community, and this left them distraught and in mourning and bereaved. But to make matters worse, they were also terrified about the current state of their loved ones, because back in the day, in the ancient world, death was believed to be final. And so the majority of the Thessalonians, having grown up in this society and this religious culture that they did, they had no concept of the afterlife or a life after death. Death, especially untimely death, brought on unexplicable sorrow and mourning. And so the Thessalonian Christians, I think, were just scared of what's happened to their loved ones. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said it famously, that no one ever told me that griefs felt so much like fear. And from what I can tell, that's how the Thessalonians were feeling. And you know what Pastor Paul does not do? Paul does not tell them to just suck it up. He does not tell them to deny the reality of pain and sorrow that their loss has brought. He does not try to diminish or mitigate the real emotions that we feel after we experience the loss of someone we love. It is not a sign of a weak faith to lament the death of someone we love. Paul instead tells the Thessalonians, and I believe to us as well, that he just wants us to grieve well. And as Henry Nouwen said, we must mourn our losses. We cannot talk or act them away, but we should shed tears over them and allow ourselves to grieve deeply. But he says in the midst of all that pain, there is this strange and shocking, but yet very surprising voice. And it's the voice of one who says, blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. And that's the unexpected news, that there is a blessing hidden in our grief, not that those who comforted are blessed, but those who mourn, and that somehow in our tears, a gift is hidden, and that somehow in our mourning, the first steps of the dance takes place. And I think this is closer to Paul's point to the Thessalonians, because Paul does not tell the Thessalonians not to grieve. Rather, Paul says as Christians, if and when we grieve, we do so differently than the vast majority of people in this world. And remember, to the ancient Thessalonians, this would all have been new to them. But Paul says that we possess, friends, a hope that no one else can claim, a beautiful hope that does not lie dormant, but that has been bursting forth alive and well in this world. Listen to what Pastor Paul says. He says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised again, and also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the 
believers who have died. And then Paul reveals something he received directly from the Lord himself, something that we would say was probably breathed by the Holy Spirit that inspired him to say that we who are still living, when the Lord returns, will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself, he says, will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the first the believers who have died, they will rise from their graves. And together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then, friends, we will be with the Lord forever. Now, don't miss the forest for the trees here, friends, because I know a lot of us instinctively want to do this, but can you suspend that for just a moment? What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that the saints who have died are not lost, but they're presently with the risen Christ. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the risen Lord, and the saints with the Lord will one day return with him. On that glorious day, sometime in the future, when he comes again with the trumpet shout to fully make all things new. And on that day, us who are still remaining in this world will somehow be caught up and reunited with them and with the Lord. And together we will be ushered into glory that will crescendo into this beautiful declaration. It's becoming one of my favorite Bible verses in the whole Bible, this promise it's verse 17, the last little bit of it. We will be with the Lord forever. Did you catch what I believe Paul wants us to hear this morning? The reason why we have hope, we are destined to be with the Lord forever. And that nothing, that not even death can thwart or prevent that. This, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. That God has made a way to be with us forever and ever and that nothing's going to stop him. That from the very beginning, we were created to be in fellowship with God. But this intrusion that we call sin, it created a barrier between us and God, preventing us from enjoying and living in relationship with him. But out of love for us, out of a desire to rekindle that community with us, God set out and began working to restore that fellowship doing whatever it took to restore that ability for us to be with him once again. And the story of the Bible, friends, from cover to cover, is God's love finding a way to get closer and closer to us. Until one day when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile us back to him. That Jesus came, took on our human nature, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and through his resurrection, he conquered the grave and defeated the power of sin over us. And that has reconciled us with God and restored the possibility of relationship with God again. For the sting of death is sin, Paul told the Corinthians. But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the reason that we have hope. The reason that we don't mourn like the rest of the world does. Because for those of us who have placed our trust in Christ and what Christ has done for us, at the end of our journeys on earth, the sting of death is now completely and totally incapable of separating us from a God who desires to be one and only Emmanuel, God, with us. Because where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? 
that neither now, now neither life or death, nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. But you want to know the problem, I think, or at least that I see it is, it isn't that we're going to be uninformed like the Thessalonians. It's more like we're going to be misinformed. And this misinformation can actually be, if it's not already, a distraction from the hope that Paul's talking about or the distraction for the friends around us that don't realize they have this hope. Because unfortunately, over the centuries, many have had the habit of approaching this text looking for the wrong answers. And whether it be about clues about the last days or hints about a so-called rapture that's never mentioned. Because I bet if you know anything about 1 Thessalonians, it's this passage and the elaborate word search for a word that you're never going to find. And for the three people that are curious, etymologically, you can eventually find the word rapture. Did you know this? Did you know that the word rapture is not anywhere inside the Bible, but rather it is a Latin translation, raptus, from the original Greek word harpazo, rendered in English as caught up. I know that was really boring, but that's where we get the word rapture. This word that so many people are so eager to talk about, Paul never uses the R word because he wrote in Greek. He didn't write in Latin. Friends, if I may make an observation, I'm just going to get my soapbox for just two seconds. I'll get off of it in a minute. This idea of a rapture has taken on a life of its own, and it's distracting us from the hope that we have. Because despite the fact that it, never, it appears a grand total of zero times in the Bible, yet people make it this huge thing. It appears as many times as the Broncos have beaten the cheat, Patrick Mahomes, which is zero. I just had to get that one in there. I thought that was a good joke. When we hear rapture, we envision, if you, maybe you're like me, if you grew up in the church, this secret, if not sudden, physical removal of Christians. They're supposed to be the genuine Christians, right? Because we then combine it with Jesus's one will be taken, one will be left, right? But no, Jesus doesn't make any moral connotations to when he says that. <laughs> but again, these true and genuine Christians will be somehow yanked from the earth prior to any perils or catastrophes associated with what Revelations calls the Great Tribulation. Mind you, Paul does not do this at all, nor does he expect us to do this. But so many of us, especially those of us who grew up in the church, have been influenced either deliberately or subconsciously. I think by maybe preachers or zealous influencers or passionate personalities who just want to flex their eschatology to get a higher turnout at their altar call, or by over-the-over-imaginations of authors and filmmakers, right? That these, they, they turn this idea, they make media engineered and designed to prick the amygdalas in our brain, no different than Knocker Woods does, all in the name of evangelism. I know too many Christians who sweat bullets thinking they're going to be left behind. I know many Christians who lose sleep over the fact that this, what religious, uh, religious mental health experts now, they call it rapture anxiety. That they have this spiritual trauma that 
that leads them to have stress and depression and paranoia, asking that maybe I just need to say this prayer of salvation again because maybe I'm going to miss out on the rapture. Or I need to confess my sins all the time because any minute now Jesus could come back and I don't want to be left behind. I can't be the only one who thought that maybe I missed the rapture just because someone wasn't at home. The rapture is this boogeyman, the monster at the end of the Bible. A Frankenstein's monster mashed together from a couple of taken out of context lines from Paul, sewn together with some cryptic things Jesus said that people have now twisted and brought to life by our latent fears about the end of the world from John's revelation on the island of Patmos. This is a monster that's really terrifying that we all don't want to miss out, a monster of our own making. Friends, I want to know you to know that what Paul says, do you want to know what he says is at the end of the Bible and it isn't a monster. <laughs> it's a God who one day is coming to be fully and personally reunited with you and with me. And when he comes, it'll be like when royalty, dignitaries from Rome, even the emperor himself, when they would come for a state visit at that capital city of the providence of Macedonia, which the Thessalonians would have been very familiar with. And there will always be, when they come for that state visit, boisterous displays of fanfare that accompany their arrival. And there will be great pomp and circumstance, just like when the Cornhuskers exit the tunnel for their games. Magnificent celebration and banquets and... I mentioned the Cornhuskers. You didn't do anything. Um, banquets and speeches. I, I did it. I did it. Banquets and speeches and music, friends, especially trumpets that will announce that the dignitaries have come to town. This will, this is, you're not going to miss this. This isn't going to be a secret. And the local officials, everyone in town, the crowds and the multitudes, do you know what they did when the dignitaries came to town? They'd go out of town and greet them and receive them when they came. And they'd be appropriately dressed in their best clothing, and they'd be excited and overjoyed. Friends, that's the imagery that when our King of Kings returns, we'll be fully alive and in total victory, we'll go out and greet him that way. That he's coming back in the same way his disciples saw him ascend. And when his people, they will rise to meet him. And friends, our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in death, they will be stirred and awakened and they will rise from their graves to meet him. And death will not keep them from greeting their king. And that we who are fully alive, we will join them. Friends, this is not talking about who's left behind. Paul's more concerned with who's already dead, not who's already here. It's just to differentiate us from those that have passed away. And notice what Paul's confidence that he boldly says, and then we will be with the Lord forever. So many people get fixated on the choreography that we miss what Paul and the rest of the New Testament that I'm convinced want us to notice, and that's the geography. We focus on the choreography of the up and out, but Paul is more concerned of where we are, and that's with the Lord. And even then, Paul's not very specific. He doesn't even say we're in heaven. He just says we're with the Lord because he doesn't care where we are as long as we're with God because the place doesn't matter. Only the person does. And that's with the Lord, a God who wants to be with each and every one of us. Steve Lennox says, imagine you've been traveling, or reading a travel guide, sorry, describing a country you've always wanted to visit, 
And at the very end of the book, you find a note written to you personally by the publisher directing you to how you can pick up your free plane ticket. That's the story of the Bible. The Bible is more than just a book about God. It's a message from God describing how you can enter into a relationship with him that begins now, that will culminate and crescendo to you being with him personally one day on that glorious day. John Piper says the gospel is not a way to get to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. Sky Dachani says... It is only when we grasp God's unyielding desire to be with us that we begin to see the ultimate purpose of the cross. It is more than a vehicle to rescue us from death. It transports us into the arms of life. The cross is how we acquire our treasure. It's how we find unity with God. Friends, that's the story of the Bible, that there's not a monster at the end of the book, but a God who wants to embrace you like a father that will run out to you saying, I'm so glad I thought you were dead, but my son and daughter is now alive. Let's prepare the banquet feast. And by grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you and I can experience a relationship with God, not only in the life to come, but in this life right now, that will culminate with us being fully and eternally united with him, along with our loved ones and our brothers, sisters, sisters in Christ, who have fallen asleep, and that one day we will be with the Lord forever. But friends, as people of Easter, as people who have a relationship with the king who is coming, as people who have the assurance of salvation and resurrection, this doesn't mean that we, mo- we do not mourn and do we- that we do not grieve. Instead, it means that we mourn and grieve not like other people. Christians do not lament like unbelievers without hope of resurrection. Friends, Paul says the gospel changes our grief. And while it may not eliminate it and doesn't necessarily soften it, it does mean that it's possible that it's a means of grace. This hope doesn't take away the painful necessity of traversing through the valley of the shadow of death or nearing Lazarus's tomb, perhaps wifting the stench of loss. But it does transform and if not sanctify those tears as it did Mary Magdalene's who stood outside the tomb crying early on the first day of the week while it was still dark when she encounters in the morning glow the risen Lord, the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I believe that we can taste the nourishment of our Father's daily bread as we mourn and grieve, that we can experience the nearness of our risen Lord who weeps with us and who comes to comfort us. But Lord, can we hear the words of the Holy Spirit that has illuminated and inspired the words of this text from 1 Thessalonians that's not meant to scare us, but meant to bring us hope, and assurance. We will be with the Lord, friends. I hope that you'll take that with you.